This podcast brought to you by TechSmith. More A3 is software that helps you see things from your customer's point of view, so you can make things that are truly fast, powerful, and easy to use. By BlackBot, making the world a better place by providing technology solutions and support to nonprofit organizations around the world. By OptimalSort, with an elegant user interface, powerful analysis, and outstanding support, OptimalSort can help you run card sorts better than you ever thought possible. By PowerMapper, mapping your site has never been easier. PowerMapper extracts links from each page of your site until it's mapped your entire site, providing you with a complete inventory. By Axure, enabling information architects and user experience professionals to design efficiently, experience their designs, and clearly communicate them, ensuring more useful and usable application. And by Boxes and Arrows. Since 2001, Boxes and Arrows has been a peer-written journal promoting contributors who want to provoke thinking, push limits, and teach a few things along the way. For other events happening all over the world, be sure and check out events.boxesandarrows.com. Wouldn't it be nice if, instead of digging through nested menus buried inside subpanes of dialogue, we could just talk to our computers in plain language? Sure, but, but computer scientists have long since proven that such natural language processing cannot be done. Author and inventor at Storytron Chris Crawford describes a linguistic user interface outlining how it's impossible to create an LUI separately from the digital reality it reflects. In other words, the language and reality must be built up in a parallel process. Chris illustrates this with Dykto, the LUI system he created for his interactive storytelling technology. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers. Good morning. I'd like to caution you all at the very outset that uh, I've been living in the mountains of southern Oregon for the last decade or so, and so I am completely unaware of what you guys have been doing. So if I loudly proclaim some fabulous discovery that you guys have actually known about for the last 10 years, please don't laugh too hard. Um, let's see. Um, what I'd like to do today is to approach, there we go. Come on, you stupid computer. Oh, well, we won't have a title page. Uh, oh, I can't leave the mic either. Uh, what I'd like to do today is to talk about user interface design from the point of view of linguistics. Uh, not that that is the correct way to view user interface design, but merely, but merely, whoop, I got to turn it on too. Oh, at the bottom. Oh, boy, this high tech stuff just really, wow, okay. Uh, so anyway, I, uh, uh, not that linguistics is the correct way to solve all of our problems, but rather that it is a weird way to approach the problem. And the wonderful thing about weird ways of approaching problems is that they sometimes actually produce some fascinating insights. And so that's what I'd like to do today, to, uh, you know, talking weird, that's always fun. So anyway, oh, now you do go to the first page. You know, I will never understand computers. I've been programming them for 30, 40 years, and I still don't get it. Uh, okay. Now, the starting point here is if, if we were to indulge ourselves in a uh, idle fantasy of wondering what computers will look like 100 years from now, I think we can readily agree that uh, user interface will be done by simply talking to the computer. We'll just say, you know, in plain English, computer, do this, do that, whatever. I mean, after all, that's how they do it on Star Trek, right? 
So that's got to be the way it's going to be. And, well, there's only one little problem with that. You see, it's impossible. Can't be done. Computer science, at least not in the foreseeable future. Computer scientists have been working on the problem for 50 years, and they can explain in all sorts of complicated technical ways why it can't be done. But I'd like to start off by giving you a linguistic reason for why it can't be done. The Sapper-Whorf hypothesis, cooked up about 80 years ago by a couple of American linguists. You'll never guess their names. And it basically says that inside the human mind, language and reality are very closely connected. So if you want to put language inside a computer, you've got to bring reality along with it. And you know reality is kind of a big data set. And you know, it just won't fit inside any of any modern computer, any of our current machines. We're gonna have to wait a long time before we get machines big enough to hold reality. And until then, they won't be big enough to hold language either. So looks like we're screwed there. However, there's there's uh, there is a trick, a catch, a way out of this. Uh, coming from the games business, I uh, I one of the things we do in games is we create our own little toy universes. We create this little tiny toy reality, and that reality is so tiny, we can easily fit it inside a computer. And so the toy language that goes along with it will also fit inside the computer. No problem. And in fact, really, with any piece of software, you're doing the same thing. You may not call it a toy reality or a toy universe, but you might call it a model. So a word processing program has a model for what a document looks like. A, a spreadsheet has a model for how calculations are done, and so forth. It's all done with, by creating these little toy realities that we can fit inside the computer, and then we build some associated toy language. And nowadays, that language is done with you know, buttons and menus and all of that stuff. It's built out of those components, but it's still basically a language. Now. The problem with this is that we want to we want to give our users lots of expressive power. We want them to be able to say all sorts of great and wonderful things like, computer, solve my problem for me, or something close to it. And that means we want to give the computer lots of verbs. See, when we talk about language, since, since the primary function of the computer is to do things for the, the user, well, doing means verbs. So really, the way to define any computer program is to list the verbs for it. It's funny. Try to, uh, try to characterize, let's, let's try to characterize a browser by what it looks like. And, uh, but you conclude, well, uh, you know, you see this screen, and it's mostly white. It's got a lot of text on it, maybe a few bold things in text, and it may have some pictures and a little banner, a horizontal thing along the top, and, uh, and then there'll be some, some of the words are in blue, and, and uh, well, that's what you see in a browser, right? That doesn't tell you very much about a browser, does it? Now, let's define a browser in terms of its verb. Click on a hyperlink and go to another web page. Bingo! That says exactly what a browser is. The verbs define the program. And so really, I mean, that, that's the essence of it. In fact, 
This is Crawford's first law of software design. Always ask, what does the user do? Not what does he see, not what does he hear, what does he do? That's the essence of any piece of software. And so, obviously, you, you want to, if you're going to create a piece of software, if you're going to design it, the very first task is to write down a list of the verbs. What do I want my user to be able to do? I want him to be able to do this and that and this and that. And once you've got that verb list down pat, well, that's, I mean, you've done the primary task of design. Everything after that is a mere engineering detail. So, uh, Anyway, the, uh, the verb list constitutes the very core, the skeleton of the design of any piece of software. So that gives us a quick and dirty measure of the power of a piece of software. The expressiveness of it is simply what are the actual number of verbs inside a piece of software. And that will, that will tell you a lot about how powerful it is. But now, let's go on to a... Uh, Another thing, this guy must, hello, hello, there we go, thank you. Um, let me now introduce you to another concept, the number of accessible verbs. This is kind of like, uh, this, this is a concept you already know. Uh, how many verbs can the user actually find? Now, I don't mean this in the strict sense of if the user, uh, um, you know, reads all the manuals and studies it, he can find that verb. Let's define this in statistical terms. What if we had, uh, what if we were to take for a given piece of software, you know, mass market software, the entire population, all the people using that, and then we were to examine each person and go through the whole verb list and say, how many times have you used this verb? And so we check them all off and we come up with statistical counts of how many verbs are used by how many users. And then let's say we made a cutoff at uh, 50%. In other words, we said a verb is accessible only if at least 50% of the users have actually used it. That means it's an accessible verb. Uh, and so then we could count the number of truly accessible verbs in the software. Now that then gives us a, an interesting uh, uh, figure of merit for a piece of software. The ratio of accessible verbs to actual verbs, and that ratio should be one in an ideal piece of software. Now this is really just a highfalutin way of saying, you know, you gotta be able to figure out what you wanna, how to do what you wanna do. It's, it's a concept you guys know intuitively. I've just come up with a snazzy mathematical way of stating the obvious. However, it's still somewhat useful to, to keep this idea in mind when, uh, when considering a software design. You can never actually carry out this experiment, it's just too difficult. But you can at least use this as a thought experiment to consider the merits of any particular design. Now for another concept. This one is a bit more abstruse. This is the number of expectable verbs in any design. Let me see if I can explain this concept. Let's, let's take a very, very simple example of expectability. Suppose you're designing a shoot-em-up game, okay? And there are going to be monsters running around and you've got to 
get rid of the monsters, okay? Well, obviously, you're going to expect to have a gun. I mean, what's a shoot 'em up game without a gun? So you need a gun. So let's say the designer, you as designer, give the player a gun. And so the player's happy. player runs around shooting monsters. But now, suppose you decide to get generous and you put another gun somewhere for the user to find. Big mistake, very serious mistake. Why? Well, because if he finds one gun, then he has every reason to believe that there might be two guns, or three, or four, or five, or infinity. In other words, by, create, by putting down one gun, you've created the expectation of more guns. With only one gun in his hands that he never changes or does anything with, he has no reason to expect that there would be other guns. But as soon as you allow him to have more than one gun, he starts thinking, okay, are there more guns? And you have created expectations that you can't follow through on. And that's very, very bad. So the, the idea then is that every model, every whatever we put inside the computer creates expectations. And you had to make sure that those expectations don't exceed what you're actually delivering. In other words, the ratio of actual verbs to expectable verbs should be equal to one in the ideal piece of software. Again, we're talking ideal, not reality. So, uh, so there are a couple of concepts. Now let's apply these concepts to the hoary old command line interface, which used to be the standard interface in all computers because they were so gutless. Uh, and it lives on in Linux and in only two places, Linux and uh, uh, interactive fiction. These are kind of like, you know, the lost world hidden away where only, only intrepid explorers will stumble upon them uh, and get eaten. The, uh, an example of a command line interface is this command here, bzip2 minus f minus k minus v quote foobar.xmr quote. That means something, believe it or not. And uh, uh, computer scientists love command line interfaces, or programmers love command line interfaces because, well, they're powerful, they're very concise. You just type it out, pow, it's all done. Um, and it's extensible. Uh, if you want to add another command, you just create a new command, B, R, M, K, whatever, and it will. Uh, you, you have, and it's easy to uh, compute how to handle that command. Command line interfaces are really great from a programmer's point of view. Now, the number of actual verbs in Linux, that's an interesting story. I asked two programmers, how many verbs are there in Linux? And one came back and said 179. That's what's in the manual. And the other came back and said 3,500. That's the number of uh, executables and shells, uh, shell commands in my... Uh, library. So uh, you actually have a problem figuring out how many verbs there are in Linux. Uh, however, the number of accessible verbs, well, I asked each of my programmers, how many verbs do you actually have in your head? And they each said, oh, 20, maybe 30. These are professional programmers who use it every day. 
Back in the early 80s, when we had personal computers using this kind of thing, the average user could only remember about 10 verbs. It was, uh, I mean, most normal people can't memorize all this crap. And so in practice, the ratio of accessible verbs to actual verbs is less than 0.05. That's horrible, terrible. That's just, ugh. So uh, uh, obviously, th that number there is one of the reasons why command line interfaces are obsolete. Here's the other reason. Let's talk about expectable verbs. You know, Linux is a very powerful language, and, I mean, operating system. And boy, you can do almost anything in Linux. So how do you know that there isn't a command called Higgebat 100 uh, with that takes two numeric arguments? And what does that stand for? Well, it means hack into Bill Gates' bank account and transfer $100 to this bank account number. How do you know it's not in there? It could be. Well, there's one way to tr find out. You know, try it. You know, type it all in and darn, that didn't work. Well, wait a minute. Maybe we got it wrong. Maybe it's Higgibkat, uh, hack into Bill Gates' checking account and transfer, blah, blah, blah. Well, try that, and it doesn't work either. Well, okay, how about Bibbikat? Uh, break into Bill Gates' checking account and transfer. You can see this process can go on forever. I mean, you can imagine all sorts of things, and, you know, Linux can do anything, so how do you know it's not there? In other words, the number of expectable verbs in a command line interface system like Linux is infinite, which means the ratio of actual to expectable is zero. And that number right there is the second reason why command line interfaces are obsolete. Okay, so now let's apply these considerations to graphical user interfaces. Now the wonderful thing about, first, I want to talk about, not, about GUIs not as they are today, but as they were originally conceived back in the 70s. The original conception was that all of your verbs would be right in front of your face on one screen. They'd just be there, you know, it's all right there. No menus, so directly in front of your face. And theoretically, that was an ideal user interface. Why? Because every single verb is right there where you can see it, which means it's perfectly accessible which means in turn that the ratio of accessible verbs to actual verbs is one. Moreover, if you can see every verb in the system, then if you don't see it, it's not there, which means that the ratio of actual to expectable is also one. This is a theoretically perfect user interface. The only problem is that it has a limited number of verbs that it can present. I mean, you can only fit so many verbs onto one screen. And so the GUI started extending. We, we, and the nice thing about GUIs is that they are extensible. The first level of extension is the menu, where you just click on the menu and up pops a list of verbs. And boy, with that, you can add a lot of verbs very easily. But even that wasn't enough, so then we started adding other things like dialog boxes. You Take a, menu, take a menu item which brings up a dialog box. And then we put tabs inside dialog boxes and you click on a different tab and it 
It brings up a new little sub dialog box. And then we put things inside the tab sections. And so you could end up choosing a menu item from a menu inside a tab, inside a dialog box, brought up from the second hierarchical menu in a, in a hierarchical menu system. That's a lot of layers deep. And therein lies the problem. When you start adding that many verbs, they're hidden and you start losing accessibility. Users have more and more trouble finding the verbs. For example, how many people in here use Microsoft Word? Okay, and there are, I've had students actually go through and count. There are roughly 350 verbs uh, in Microsoft Word. Uh, how many people feel that they know more than 50 of those verbs? Okay. Maybe a dozen. That's the problem. That means there are 300 verbs that aren't accessible. <laughs> uh, and that's, that's about my experience, too. So your problem here is that the, uh, as you go up in hierarchy, you, as the verb count increases, the accessibility and the expectability both go in the wrong direction. And so, yeah, GUIs are, are really great when the verb count is low. But as that verb count starts rising, the, use, the effectiveness of the GUI starts falling. Now, how, can we put some numbers on this, this curve here? Can we get an idea of you know, where it goes bad? That's very difficult to do, but there is one, one datum that we can apply here that, uh, that can help us get a rough idea. And that's to observe that in all of the, you know, mass uh, market software, software that is marketed, that is not specialized to a particular uh, uh, market, to a narrow market, in all of that software, there are two broad classes of software. At one end, we have the, uh, the amateur software or the light software. And at the other end, we have the pro software. Uh, this is expensive, you know. Uh, Microsoft Word counts as that, Excel, uh, um, Adobe Photoshop, you know, all those, those big snazzy things for making movies or music or whatever. Those are, those are the pro things. And then over here, the light ones, the, uh, the easy-to-use spreadsheets, browsers, games, stuff like that. And what's, what's useful about this is the observation that the pro software always has more than 100 verbs. I mean, the pro software has hundreds of verbs, whereas the amateur software always has less than 100 verbs. So there seems to be a dividing line somewhere around 100 verbs or so. And that seems to suggest to me, that, or that, that does suggest to me, that, that 100 verbs is, the, is the, the point at which GUIs start to gum up. If GUIs were really clear and effective above 100 verbs, we would see that uh, we would see amateur or light programs with, with more than 100 verbs. So I think we have a rough idea here. GUIs are good up to about 100 verbs. Now, that's still 10 times better than command line interfaces. But our problem is with the, you know, the march of progress and humanity marching into the future, the number of verbs we're using in our software keeps increasing. We want to give our users more and more power, the ability to do more and more things, more and more verbs. And we're already well past the effective limit of GUIs. So uh, we got a problem here.
And that's the central problem a lot of us are facing. Now, I, am, <laughs> I was cursed by the fact that 16 years ago, I left the games industry to, because I felt it was too narrow in its focus. It, was, it had been very broad in the early 80s, and then it started narrowing down to a, a more queral audience. And I thought that games should, should be entertaining to everybody. Uh, you know, we should have good, you know, entertaining games for women and for older people and, you know, games about a man facing his fate on a dusty main street, uh, a prostitute with a heart of gold, a boy and his dog, uh, all those things. And uh, games were going in the opposite direction. So 16 years ago, I decided if, that we, what we really needed was interactive storytelling, and if we're going to do it, well, it looks like I'm going to have to do it myself. So I set to work on interactive storytelling, and I immediately ran into a very serious problem. Keep this in mind that a GUI gums up at 100 verbs, and that problem is well-expressed, really doesn't need any explanation from me. You can pretty much see it right there. So obviously, if, if you want to do interactive storytelling, and you need 122 unique verbs to do the Little Mermaid, the Little Golden Book version of the Little Mermaid, well, obviously, um, I mean, th this is going to be a pro-level application. I'm sorry, little girl. You can't read little, uh, the Little Mermaid until you have mastered the manual for this program. Um, you know, that, that, that won't do. Interactive storytelling requires hundreds and hundreds, even thousands of verbs, and I faced this problem 16 years ago. So I've had a lot of time to work on it, and one of the things I've done is studied linguistics, and my conclusion is that what we need is what I call a linguistic user interface. Uh, the first idea of a linguistic user interface is that you borrow the existing vocabulary of a natural language. In other words, instead of saying that this little squiggle on top of a circle means something, instead you just use the word uh, you know, library, whatever. Uh, you don't have to uh, come up with all sorts of weird little icons that mean obscure things. I once did an icon library, it just went through selecting icons from all sorts of different programs. And then I just listed them in a book I wrote. And it really is silly after a while when you see all the icons people have cooked up. And people were starting to use the, uh, you know, the, those impossible figures that look, you know, like the, uh, uh, you know, the three dimensions don't, don't work right. People are using icons with that. Now, how's that supposed to mean anything at all? Uh, so anyway, we borrow semantics from the language that we're already using, and the problem we face with this is that the typical American educated adult has a recognition vocabulary of about 50,000 words and a usage vocabulary of about 25,000 words, with the exception of a few of our political candidates. And uh, that means that if my story world that I'm building has a vocabulary of 1,000 words, then the ratio, if the user's you know, selecting words, well then obviously 
the user is going to expect to be able to use some of his 25,000 words. And so the ratio of actual to expectable is like 0.04. That's worse than a command line interface. Ugh. So obviously, we have a serious problem here. And uh, fortunately, there is a solution. I call it an inverse parser. A parser is the program used in a command line interface to understand the little string of characters that you type in. So uh, you, know, you type in something that's a, and, and hit enter, and you say, oh, oh, uh, oh, please, great computer god, accept this humble uh, request from your, your meaningless user. Please parse this command successfully. And most of the time, it comes back and says, uh, syntax error. And you say, oh my god, we got to sacrifice another virgin. And uh, you know, the user is put in the form of a supplicant. You got to ask the computer, please accept this input. The inverse parser turns the whole thing around and makes the computer the servant. Instead of calculating after the fact whether your, your syntax is correct, you have the computer calculate before the fact what would be correct, and then present all of those options to you, so, or to the, to the user. Now, that puts the computer in the proper uh, 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 relationship with the, with the user. The problem here is that if you think about it, I mean, geez, we're going to have a 1,000 words in our, in our vocabulary, and we're going to present them in a menu a 1,000 words long? That's, that's ridiculous. There's no way that's useless. Won't work. Well, the catch is that in any real situation, the context greatly limits the number of words that are actually usable. For example, let's say the user has already entered the sentence. See, in, a, in an inverse parser, the user enters his command word by word. First this, then another, and another, and another. So let's say we've already got the sentence, um, I give John the and we're going to have a menu right here. Well, there are lots of words that won't fit into that slot. You know, pink, 27, Hungarian army, galaxy, Appalachian mountains. None of those fit there. There are only a few words that will fit into that slot. They have to be objects that are transferable that I own. And there aren't many of those, so the menu is very short. Well, there's still another objection. What happens at the very beginning of a sentence when no sentence context has yet been established? In other words, I do something. What do we put in there? Well, <laughs> it could be anything. No context has been established yet, right? Wrong. There's still lots and lots of context from what has already happened. This is easy to see in the case of interactive storytelling. Let's say we got... Uh, we're doing an interactive story world uh, western, and uh, Black Bart says to Hopalong Cassidy, you ain't nothing but a low-down varmint. Now, is, is Hopalong Cassidy going to say, ooh, let's go shopping? You know, that, that's, that's inappropriate. It's dramatically all wrong. The context rules that out, in fact, rules out most verbs. There are only going to be a very few number of verbs that, that would be appropriate for that situation. And that's what keeps the menu short. 
So dramatic context is very powerful and really limits the number of verbs available. In other applications, you don't have as strong a context, but uh, you can still use context to, uh, to, to limit things. So at this point, let me see if I can break out here. And uh, there we go. Doop de doop. Wake up. La 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 la. La 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 la, you stupid computer. <laughs> oh dear. You know, I actually built computers when I was, no thank you, when I was uh, back in the 70s, you know, soldering iron and all that, assembly language, machine language. I still remember most of the 6502 hex op codes. I still get confused by these damn things. Okay, here's a demo of the software that, uh, that I've been working on. This is actually just a, 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 a demo. It's a uh, geopolitical uh, story world. You are President of the United States of America. The date, September 12th, 2001. What are you going to do to make the world a better place? Well, obviously, since it's September 12th, I'm going to uh, I'm going to set a goal here, and my goal is going to be I want to get Afghanistan to ha hand over Osama bin Laden, so I can give him to Dick Cheney, and that'll be the end of him. Uh, let's see. Okay, so fate gives me a uh, a background briefing on on Afghanistan. It has a very small insurgency. The government's resistance to my attempt will actually be medium-small. So, well, here, I'll ask them very politely. In fact, I'll ask them really fervently, oh, please, please, Afghanistan, hand him over. And Afghanistan refuses. Great. Okay, well, I tried to be nice. How about this? I, I want to show this example because this is an example of just how powerful a Louis can be. I'm going to offer a deal, but I'm going to uh, offer a deal to China to get China to, to, to get, Af I want China to twist Afghanistan's arms, or arm to hand over. So I'm going to, as part of the deal, I'm going to ask Japan to do something, and it automatically fills in the rest of the sentence because there's only one other choice here. And the end result is the sentence, I'm offering a deal to China, in which I agree to ask Japan to apologize to China for the World War II atrocities, in return for which China agrees to ask Afghanistan to hand over bin Laden. Now, the point I'd like to make here is, try doing that in a conventional GUI. You can't. I mean, game people have been working on, deal-making has been one of the interesting challenges in game design. And the types of deals you can do in games are really primitive. This is a pretty sophisticated deal structure. And, you, and it's easy to do inside, uh, inside the uh, uh, linguistic user interface. So this is an example of the kind of power you can, you can do, expressive power that you get with a linguistic user interface. So I'm gonna, I'm going to go ahead and show, jump ahead right now. Uh, let me warn you, actually pulling this off is rather difficult. 
The, the problem here is that you're creating, remember, you're creating the language and the reality. And the question you always face is, uh, do I create the reality first and then figure out a language to express that reality? Or do I create a language first and figure out what kind of reality can be done within that language? And the answer is neither and both. You got to do them both simultaneously. In this, in this universe, the toy language equals the toy reality. We're talking about the strong version of the Sapper-Whorf hypothesis. And uh, that's pretty strict. And it also requires a very different kind of development environment. And that's what I've spent most of my time working on. It's funny, on this 16-year project, I'd say maybe four years was actually developing the storytelling technology itself. And the other 12 years has been developing this development environment, how you actually program the thing to make the words and the reality. And I'll just give you one tiny example. Here, we're dealing here with the verb reports. Over here, all the verbs, and they're, they're, you know, they've got categories and so forth. And we're looking at a particular verb, the verb reports, and here are all sorts of technical things about it. But one of the options to reports is offer deal. In other words, uh, after you've gotten a report, one of the things you could do after that is to offer a deal to somebody. And remember how I offered a deal to China? Right here is the script, the actual program that controls who could be on that menu. And basically all it says is, I can offer this deal to anybody who is not me and is not the person I want, uh, whose arm I want twisted. So that's an example of the little programming language. We had to develop our own programming language for this. We call it Sappho uh, because we wanted a language that non-technical people at least have a chance of using. And uh, it's a really cute, uh, uh, let's see if I can find something cute. Oh, here we go. See, it's got all these neat colors. Like, like, see, props are pink, and actors are blue, and booleans are black, you know, black and white. And uh, there are all these nifty colors. Numbers are red, so the colors are kind of very helpful to, so you can figure out what's going on. And anyway, so we got all this complicated stuff. Isn't that wonderful? Uh, uh, but I do want to emphasize the... Development environment for any kind of Louis is going to be really tough to develop. And if you decide you want to pursue this, I strongly urge you to have a good look at what we're doing and steal ideas from it as much as possible because uh, uh, here we are. Whoops. Okay. So because this is hard to do. Okay, so blah, 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 I've already done that. Let's move on. Oh, yes, final point I want to make here. Uh, the most important lesson I think that we can learn from linguistics has to, uh, comes from something called discourse analysis. You know, the way, most, you, the way you were taught English in school is really misleading because that's not the way, the, what you learned in school isn't the way people use language at all. Linguists 
decided, you know, back in the 19th, I'm sorry, in the 19th century, linguists were studying language in a formal way, as a formal logical system, and they came up with all these terms for sub for cases and tenses and moods and voices and all of that stuff, and it was all very logical. Well, uh, starting about 50 years ago, linguists started doing something called discourse analysis, and when they, wonder of wonders, they actually listened to what people were saying. I think it was the tape recorder that made it possible. They record regular conversations between regular people, then they transcribe the conversations. Guess what? People break every rule in the book. People, the way people talk, I mean, they, it's the language is all screwed up. It's, it's, at first glance, an English teacher going through this transcript would have a heart attack. Um, and yet, it works. That is, you know, two people on the street can be talking this gibberish to each other, leaving out their subjects, verbs, prepositional clauses, whatever. They leave out all this stuff, and yet they understand each other. In fact, conversations are enormously reliable. They, they work wonderfully. So what, go, what gives here? Well, what we, what we didn't realize for a long time is just how much the speaker relies upon the listener to fill in meaning. In other words, Speakers of natural language are really uh, ruthless about making language efficient as a communications medium. They squeeze it down to the absolute minimum. They give the fewest number of words to get the message across as quickly as possible. However, that requires enormous intelligence on the part of the listener. So if one guy is saying, yeah, yeah, we're, we're probably gonna have to cancel that contract, and then the other guy says, well, Jones then? And this guy knows exactly what he means. Oh, should we, should we ask Jones about this? Well, he didn't even have to fill that in. The listener provides lots of, of, of computation of context to figure out uh, what things mean. And that, I think, is going to be a part of user interfaces in the future. We've got to take into account more and more context, Con workflow context. One of the big things that irritates me about user interface designs for most applications is that they allow you to do anything, anytime. And that's stupid. It's not efficient because most of the time people follow a regular workflow and you should, you should tap into that workflow, take advantage of it, and design the user interface so that things move along more quickly, so that the user doesn't, doesn't have to over-specify everything. This does require, though, enormous computational resources. You've got to keep track of everything they've done uh, and then apply that. Now, this really isn't a new idea. We have already started walking down this path. When you use an email program, when, when I'm going to send an email to one of my colleagues, I, you know, for, it says, you know, recipient, and I type in L-A, and the program rushes off and looks through my address book and finds all the people whose uh, names begin with L-A, and then, it doesn't stop there, then it goes through and statistically analyzes, you know, I've got three people here, I've got 
Laura Mixon, I've got Lorraine Visser, and I've got uh, Linnell Chittelin. And uh, then it says, well, you know, I've only emailed Linnell twice and Lorraine 10 times and Laura 473 times. Look, this is almost certainly going to Laura Mixon. So it fills in Laura Mixon for me. That's a good example of what I'm talking about. Context-sensitive jumps where you just figure out what the most likely answer is and just stick it in there. Now, the problem with this is that you're sometimes going to make mistakes. And in fact, the email programs have a very nice recovery system where you know they show you the main one, but if you want, you can see the little menu of the alternatives. Um, and that, that's what makes it easy, and that's why people are doing it already. What I'm saying is we got to jump further away uh, or further out into the wild blue yonder. We've got to start taking more chances. We've got to apply uh, past history with a deeper calculation of context to make better guesses as to what the user is trying to do. Why? It's a matter of efficiency. It's a matter of making user interfaces faster. As software gets more complex, users are gonna be wanting to do really complicated things. And if you require them, all right, spell out the subject and the verb and the preposition and the article and the adjective and the adverb, if you require them to spell out every little detail, your interface is gonna be really slow. You're gonna to have to just automatically fill in things for people. You're gonna to have to make guesses. Now, the problem with that is you're gonna be wrong sometimes. You're gonna make guesses that are all wrong and then your user is gonna say, eh, why is this stupid computer doing things that I don't want it to do? Yep, that'll happen, guaranteed. However, that's not necessarily bad. What's important is the ratio of correct to incorrect. Right now, users are gonna expect like a 95% correct to incorrect ratio, but uh, as time goes on, they'll be more forgiving once, they, once we, they realize we're getting big efficiency gains. Moreover, there's, uh, they already do it with conversation. There's lots and lots of errors in conversation, and we don't get upset. You know, my, my, you know I'll, I'll ask my wife, uh, where did you put the, uh, uh, the camera? And she'll say, in the red thing. And I turn around and I look, and I see you know, a red chair and a red box and a red shelf. And uh, well, I do admit, sometimes I do get irritated. But most of the time, we say, OK, which red thing? And we, we follow up with an, another question to figure it out. Uh, and computers will have to do the same thing. Moreover, this is not just a matter of efficiency. It's also a matter of effectiveness. I'd like to bring to your attention the operation of the mammalian immune system. You realize that uh, our immune systems kill many, many people all the time? I mean, a lot of people die from their own immune systems. And you would, your first glance, you'd think, you know, this is obviously a bad design. If immune systems are killing us, then why don't they turn down the dial and not be so aggressive? Well, the problem is the immune system, just like you, is working in an atmosphere of uncertainty. It doesn't know. You don't know exactly what your user wants to do, and the immune system doesn't know exactly what type of infectious diseases there are out there. And so the immune system has to make guesses. 
just like you do. The problem is, if the immune system wants to cover its ass and say, oh, no, no, I refuse to accept liability for you know, any uh, errors on my part, I will never overreact to any situation, then people will die from every infectious disease that comes along because the immune system simply won't be able to respond to infectious diseases fast enough. So the immune system has to be aggressive. It has to take chances. It has to say, woo, I don't know what this is, but I'm going to get it. And unfortunately, it might be your kidney. And, you know, sometimes that happens. But most of the time, it doesn't. Most of the time, it says, that's a cold virus. Ah, and it nails it. And that's good. And it's even better if it, you'd be surprised how many horrible diseases are lurking around inside your body. I mean, you come in all the time, and your immune system just clobbers them before you even know about it. Um, and, and so you had to make a trade-off here between being too aggressive and too passive. And that trade-off means you're going to make mistakes. If you err too often in the, uh, in the direction of pass passivity, then you're going to have situations where the body dies or the user doesn't get the work done. If you err too often in the direction of aggressiveness, sometimes you're going to kill the body or mislead the user. That happens. What this requires is a certain amount of courage and judgment, feel. That's the artistic part of it. That's the special thing that you bring to this picture. And that's what you, basically what I'm telling you is language tells us you've got to have the courage to, to make mistakes. And that's the only way we're going to get really great user interfaces. So I'm just about out of time. Let's see if we can take any questions here. Yeah. Oh, okay. The question is about the relationship between language evolution and computer interface evolution. Uh, Actually, this is this process. I doubt we'll see a lot of feedback, but we are already seeing some. For example, it won't be long before the verb Google is applied more gen generically to any kind of search. Uh, you know, for example, we, we, the verb Xerox has already attained some generality where people mean it to make any type of duplicative process. So yeah, there will be some feedback, but that will mostly take the form of individual words. The language is always going to be the big, the 500-pound the gorilla in the room compared to computer interfaces. And so I suspect that language evolution will be, have a more powerful effect on computer use than the other way around. So uh, uh, however, there is this matter of learning the language, that is, it took a long time. GUIs have evolved because people have learned what GUIs are like. So initially, GUIs were very simple, and they have grown more complicated with the passage of time because the, the audience, the learning community, has, has started getting familiar with the stuff so we can push them a little harder. So linguistic inter user interfaces are going to start off, have to start off very simple and plain. And then once people get used to them, then we can take another step and make them more compli complicated. It will take time 
to develop them, just as it took time, for example, for people to learn about the movies. The early movies were very, watch old movies, they're very simple. Uh, people had difficulty understanding the medium. And this continues on. In 1979 or 80, 81, Raiders of the Lost Ark was a major step forward in movie literacy. Uh, it had that great scene right at the beginning where the bad guy sneaks up behind the good guy and starts to point his gun, and then the good guy suddenly turns around and goes, knocks the gun out of his hand. Watch that scene again sometime. Nine shots in force in three seconds. Stay, stitched together so quickly, you don't, you're not even aware of them, except subliminally. Young audiences could understand it, old ones couldn't. All media developed their language with the passage of time. Uh, how much time left? One more question. Yes? You mean to uh, bosses? Oh. My guess is that this is going to be something that slowly creeps in, and that the first people to really do it will be the academics, who, you know, who will try these weird, interesting things, uh, and also some websites, braver websites that, you know, where the person who owns it is also the person designing it. Uh, and I think we will see it, you know, once we establish, gosh, this really works, then we'll take another little step and another little step. The point I'm making to you is that look ahead to where we're going. Someday we're going to reach the point where user interfaces make mistakes all the time, and they, but they're, they're so easy to recover from that, and they increase the efficiency so much everybody accepts them. We're not going to get there for a long time. But let's at least start walking down that path. Okay, well, I think that's, that's it, so thank you very much.